Thank you for coming Thank you for coming out. Welcome. My name is Dubs Weinblatt. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm so excited to be here. In 2015, I founded the Queer Improv Show, Thank You for Coming Out, or TIFCO as we call it, and it is now one of the longest-running queer improv shows in New York City. During the show, our storytellers share their coming out stories, and then our improvisers bring them to life. Our podcast is a little different. We still have a storyteller share their stories, but instead of folks improvising, we talk about them. And this episode is even more, a little bit different. We're recording still during the COVID-19 pandemic while physically distancing. So we are not in our studio and we are using Zoom audio. So it's a little different than what you're used to, but we are all doing the best we can with what we have. And I am super excited about our guest here with me today. Long at the vanguard of Black queer performance art, Daniel Alexander Jones, Jones, excuse me, he, him, his, or they, them, theirs, is a celebrated theater artist, playwright, and songwriter. On the heels of winning the 2021 Penn America Laura Pels Foundation Theater Award, Jones recently released two books, Love Like Light, a landmark collection of his plays and performance texts from the last 25 years, and Particle and Wave, a conversation with leading Black feminist scholar Alexis Pauline Gums, a digital album and music video series featuring his soul sonic alter ego, Jamama Jones, and a podcast series. According to Backstage, he is a true theatrical original. Daniel, welcome. Well, so happy to be here with you. Thank you, Dubs. It's yeah. an honor to be part of this. Yeah. I'm so happy to have you here. How, how's your morning going? What's, what's It's shaking? going very well. Yeah, what's shaking is my, <laughs> my hand with my coffee in it. You know, it's still, as we were saying, tanking up a little bit on the caffeine to get things rolling. But I'm very happy to be here. I've, I've been visiting with my brother and father in Springfield, Massachusetts. So that's where I'm, I'm reaching you from. And it's a nice, crisp November 1st day. <laughs> That's nice. I mi- I miss crisp fall weather. I was walking mm. around New York City yesterday and I was like schwitzing. I was so hot yeah. <laughs> and I was like not even dressed like layers. I was like, what is mm-hmm. happening? I mean, I know it's happening, but it's sad. So I'm glad that it's yeah, fall crisp for you. Yeah. <laughs> it is that. It is that. Um, I, I'm just like staring at your bio and you have you've first you've done so much throughout your career but it also seems like and just like right now like two yes. books and a podcast so I can't wait to just ask you all the questions but first For sure. uh-huh. <laughs> we all we all have multiple coming out stories coming into yeah. ourselves stories mm-hmm. um, and I would love and invite you to share one of those with us thank you so much for asking so I was thinking about it and I love that you said we have multiple because I feel so much that I'm I'm a multiple being and I, I see multiply, right? So there even my coming out story, quote unquote, feels like it has multiple edges to it. But the, you know, in some ways, honestly, dubs, I don't know that I was ever in, you know, mm. to come out. That that I think I was always a bit of bit of I was always myself from very, very early on, and therefore always a bit out of the box. And um coming into my sense of identity as a person was so grounded in having been raised by um, a mother and father who were who came out of the civil rights era, right? And they were deeply, deeply shaped by and, and, and believed in the idea of, of common humanity and, and kindness and inclusion. So there's a way in which I felt in my immediate environment, very free to be whoever it was that I, I wanted to be at any given moment but it was only when I went to school that I learned these real rigid rules about who a boy was who a girl was what what sexuality was supposed to be if we even talked about it at all in Massachusetts Mm -hmm. with our puritanism you know Mm -hmm. um and so as my natural predilections to gravitate towards certain books and music and colors and ways of you know moving and being in the world and talking um, rose up and I tended to get along so much better with girls than boys and I tended to crush out on boys and not girls and things started to get clear 
Um, I don't know that I had a pressure from, from I, within my family to name or identify it, but I began to experience that kind of um, almost like the maze of boundaries uh, in the school world, in, whether it be elementary school or going into junior high school, especially when everybody hit puberty. And that's kind of when it went off the rails a bit because, you know, as I, I was a year younger than everybody in my class because of my birth date. So, um, you know, all the kids went away after seventh grade and they came back and they were, they had bloomed, you know, like hormones had hit them and it hadn't happened to me yet. So I was in this weird in-between place where not only did I not fully feel myself as a young adult, not only was I, I think, probably unsure of what gender really meant before we had language, because this is like 1981, 1982, we didn't have language for that. Um, I just knew I didn't belong to these rules. I didn't fit them. Um, and as I began to discover theater in high school, you know, it was just clear. I was like, you know, I was like a young queen in training. I was like very <laughs> dramatic and very, you know, loud storyteller. I, I wore what I wanted to wear. I was very provocative in ways without trying to be even. It just was kind of expressing myself. And that's when I began to get a lot of... Um, you know, I was bullied a lot in school uh, by straight kids and, and, and sort of violently physically and then also verbally every day. And so I began to develop a bit of a tough skin about it. But as I, as I stepped further into my art, you know, like learning that I could, I could stand on a stage and transform, that I could command attention, that I could move people's emotions, it became harder and harder to hide all of what was in me. Um, because I couldn't do that honestly and not show what I felt and not show what I longed for and not show what I, I was dealing with on the inside. Um, so in a way, I kind of, in terms of the formal coming out, I kind of trickled out, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because, because it, there were certain places where I, I boldly would claim that identity of being a queer person. Um, and then there were other places where it wasn't the, at the forefront of my mind because maybe race was at the forefront or class was at the forefront or there was some other thing I was dealing with. And I tended to glom onto one vantage point and work from that place. Um, but the big deal, I think probably came toward the end of my teenage years, right? And I, and I wanted to firmly come out, name myself, be, you know, be very visible in my identity. And at that time, my grandmother, and this is the good part of the story, my grandmother was, uh, had, an, had uh, reached her 80s and she had convinced herself, Dubs, that she was going to die at a certain age because mm. she was just like one of her two beloved aunts and the one beloved aunt had died at like 88 years old. So around 87, she started to wane, you know, like get a little bit frail you know, and, and, and we all were like, oh my God, is, is she just gonna wither away and go? And so my mother asked me, please don't tell her because if you tell her, it'll, it'll push her over the edge and you know, you'll kill your grandmother. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that thing, you know, like that. Just no pressure, pressure, right? You know? No pressure at all. <laughs> and so, so I was like, Tip, you know, and at that point I was starting to write about my, my queerness and, and, and perform things about my queerness. And I didn't want to hide from my grandmother, you know? So 88 comes and we're all sort of like waiting. It's like, is this going to be the time? Is this going to be the time? And uh, she didn't die. And she didn't die. And at the end of that year, she said, oh, I'm going to be like my other grandmother who died at 90, blah, 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 blah. Like she, <laughs> so, and so she rose back up. She rejuvenated. She, <laughs> she came back full strong. And so I said, well, I, I have to tell her. So I called my mother and I said, mom, I, now that we know, you know she's not going to go, I need to tell her. And my mother said, oh, I told her already. I said, what? Wow. <laughs> how, how did you, you told me not to, how did you tell her? And, and so I connected with my grandmother and, and she was like, she said, well, we all always knew. But, and I also, this is my grandmother saying this. She said, I also wonder about Jesus. And she went on a whole thing having, have, you know, cause she had been studying the Bible thinking that she was gonna go. Mm. Um, and so she had a whole theory that Jesus might've been queer. So I felt, I felt like that was a really, uh, a quick turn 
of events. Uh, so from a deathbed to wondering whether or not Jesus might be one of us <laughs> was, was really a great, <laughs> that's my coming out uh, hilarity. <laughs> wow. Thank, thank you for sharing. For sure. I, uh, um, I love, I'm just like looking back. I love the idea of trickling out. Mm-hmm. and um you know finding the spaces i'm just imagining like a river of like finding yes. the spaces where you where it fits where it feels good where it's not forced have you mm-hmm. found um like since those those years of your teen teenage years yes. that you've uh-huh. trickled that you've trickled out more in different ways absolutely you know so so i would say probably you know i was still trickling through college in some ways and i would name very explicitly that you know my my political awakening came far more around race mm-hmm. uh so i became someone who is adept at engaging issues of race and history uh and so again that was at the forefront and in some ways because i really didn't have uh any romantic uh life. I never had really reciprocal uh, romantic experiences during college. That was just in the, or even grad school, like it was in the back burner, you know, like it was, it was not a thing that was forefronted for me. Um, because for me, the heat around identity was, was around race and, and this historical continuum. So, however, I should say, I did start to write, as I mentioned, very explicitly about queerness in my, my own performance work and, and what have you. So, there was a way that by the time I hit my 20s and was starting to make work professionally, I was very much out. And it was something that I kind of walked with wherever I went. And in a way, my coming out as in the the other places where I've trickled out have been more about the ways I've lived between the lines in my life, right? Mm. And the ways in which, uh, for example, I feel like the coming out that I'm in right now is a, about spirituality and about a kind of mysticism that I walk with and that I live with. Things that have been very private my whole life that I'm starting to write more publicly about. Um, certainly that's in the, in the conversation I have with Alexis Pauline Gums. It's, you know, it suffuses the book, but it's this, it's this sense of being brave enough to stand up and say, hey, I have a different way of seeing life. I have a different way of seeing the world. Um, than than many of the people I engage with. And I find that to be as important as some of the more granular politics of identity that we have to navigate and the the coalition building politics that we 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 engage, you know, to fight for, you know, justice, to fight for rights and access and to fight um, you know, against this this, you know, terrifying passage we find ourselves in in this nation. Um, where where our very democracy is is under siege. So um, you know, I, I I feel like what what I maybe can glean from that is that I tend to stand up and be vocal and visible about something when it means a lot to me. But I, in many ways, I'm a very private person. Like, and not not private. Like, I don't. I'm ashamed of anything. But I just don't tend to broadcast a lot of that stuff. So my coming out has been maybe quieter than some other folks because I'm, I'm actually like, let me get to work. Let me, let me let the art do it. Let me, let me put it in my, if I'm teaching well, if I'm speaking well in public, then I'm, I'm hoping that the work that I do will carry that message of, of, of uh, expansive selfhood. Mm, I love that expansive selfhood. Um, I want to go back to something you just said about um, Mm -hmm. like, I love, first of all, I love the idea of coming out, you know, as it relates to spirituality and kind of going against what, what society expects us to believe in, to think, um, how we're, how it's built. I'm Jewish and mm-hmm. I have, I work at a Jewish nonprofit. So my, my immediate world tends to be all Jewish, but then when I step mm. outside of that bubble, Mm -hmm. The world is not built for Jewish people (laughs) like art, like, and so it actually does become a coming out sometimes of like, Mm -hmm. do I share this piece of my identity with you? Is it safe? Um, Mm -hmm. And then expanding out further from that of um, as a genderqueer trans person, I'm not always read that way. And so I always, I have to decide also, am I going to come out Mm -hmm. to you about this part of my identity? Is it safe? And then I think, yes. you know, it's just, it's, um, and so what you said, like 
being brave enough to 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 lit to seeing and living a different way of life um really is it's i feel like it's especially as part of the lgbtq community um there's those moments often of am i brave enough to well it's you know it's i'm thinking about even just admitting it to ourselves of like is mm-hmm. this something that i can even handle like you were talking about like keeping things private and then getting, and then, and then digging and getting to work. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it took me years to come into my trans identity because it was so scary and hard. And I also for a long time, didn't have the language. I feel like I'm rambling now, but it's, I just, You're not re- at all. okay, no. good. It, it just, not it feels all. so resonant of um, that. I'm trying to pull out the, like you were talking about living between the lines and how, all of us actually live between the lines in one way or another and how can we find that common thread so we can all share a little bit more humanity so maybe our democracy wouldn't be such a shit show absolutely and and partly too i think about you know one of the things that the my very dear uh and inspiring friend alexis pauline gums with whom i had the conversation for particle and wave um, is renowned for is her deep, deep work on on the body of writing um, and and teaching of, of Audre Lorde. She's mm. currently at work on a new uh, biography, which is going to be a masterwork of Lorde. And, you know, in talking with Alexis, there are two things that come forward about Lorde. Uh, one being her deep commitment you know, to understanding the productive nature of differences and distinctions among us, right? That that it is very much the fact that we are in different positions that could, if we approach it the right way, give us a sense of having different perspectives on a thing. So it's not so much about which way is right, but it's if we combine all of our perspectives, we begin to see, we begin to see this idea of a resonant whole that is moving and changing and becoming. And then also the way that Alexis kind of walks with so much love, so much openness, you know? And I think very often that one of the things that we don't come out about, that we don't talk about is how much our hearts get hurt in in living, how much we long for connection to other people. And that, that this is not always about a kind of policy and politic but it's about, I want to I want to know you as a person. I want to feel that I can move through the world and be treated with fairness and with, you know, if not kindness, you know, which in today's world seems a lot to ask, mm-hmm. that, that, that there is not a kind of malignant relationship to my, my difference from you. You're, I'm not, I don't have a negative reaction to your differences from me. And that, that foundation place um, for me, leads back to these larger contemplative questions around the spirit, around the soul, and to say, you know, I'm hearing your story and I'm struck so much by it because it makes me think about, you know, just for example, I'm thinking of the long standing tradition of Jewish activism um, that is so profoundly tied to making a more humane society. Yeah, and the 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 inc- you know the the incredible hatred directed toward Jews uh, consistently, mm-hmm. um, and to think that you know more often than not, you know when I look at at the historical record in terms at least in terms of my experience of Black Jewish relationships in the early part of the twentieth century, that was a foundational set of relationships of mutual work together, and it didn't. It, it was often, if not always, the case that there were profound differences, profound distinctions of view or, 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 or maybe political strategy, right? Mm-hmm. But that sense of we want a better world, right? You know, and, the, and that that is being a foundation of the faith, that you do something to make the world better with your life force. Um, you know, that, we, that those things are now absented from our public conversation, right? We don't talk about our, our desire to make things better in, a, in an interpersonal way, in, a, in, a, in terms of human community. Yeah. And so that's a thing that I long to, to contribute to in my life, you know, and it's, uh, it very often feels like, <laughs> you know, pushing the stone up the mountain or something. Yeah. Uh, but, but it is, I'm not, I'm not at ease if I don't do that work. 
Um, and that's because I come out of a long tradition of, of uh, family members who were community service oriented um, from Jump Street. I'm actually sitting right now at the table <laughs> that I grew up eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner at. And this table would be the place where on Saturday mornings, usually, I would come down, you know, you come down and watch cartoons on the little TV with the rabbit ears or whatever. Oh, yeah. And uh, there would often be somebody at this table with my parents. It might be the man who delivered the milk. It might be the neighbor. It might be an old friend. But they would be there because my parents were people that they could trust to tell a hard thing that was happening to them mm -hmm. in their life. And my, they were, my parents kind of were like the unofficial counselors of our neighborhood, right? of our community. And what I learned just kind of, you know, cause I wanted to watch, you know, Super Friends or Wonder Woman, whatever it was, <laughs> but in the background, my ears were attuned and I would listen and kind of spy on the grown folks. And more often than not, it was the sense that somebody could be a witness yeah. to something you were suffering through. And by being a witness, they could help you hold it and help you move through it. And so in a way, I feel like my everything I've made as an artist is some way trying to be that thing for somebody who might come into that theater or come into that gallery or performance space or pop on their headphones. And that something I might share might say, hey, I see you and I'm, I want to hold space for you and witness you so that maybe just maybe you can go on for another day. That's so incredible. I love that. I love, first of all, I love the, just the imagery. I, I, I can actually see you, but everyone else can't of, you know, sitting at this table and uh -huh. <clears throat> the kind of feelings that that brings for you. That's really special. I, I am um, stuck in the best way on what you're talking about here, which is what drives all of my work. <laughs> and mm. it's being a witness and helping hold and helping move through. Um, I, you know, I, so I grew up in the mid eighties in, in Columbus, Ohio. And so I, I talk often about how there was no queer representation or positive queer representation really at all. And we weren't talking about gender. We weren't really, and if we were talking about sexuality, it was in a negative way. Um, yeah. And so, you know, moving through the world hurt and sad and lonely and isolated um, I don't ever want anyone to feel that way again. That's right. And so That's right. in my day job, I educate Jewish professionals how to build more equitable spaces for all LGBTQ Jews. I have, thank you for coming out, but, and this is not me just reading you my resume. It's like, it's truly no, speaking. I feel it. I feel it. <laughs> um, it's so powerful. And thank you. Yeah. And so there's this other, this other, um, organization I co-founded with my friend Jeffrey Kidwell. It's called Craft Your Truth. And the whole idea of it is um, we, we have partnered so far with this nonprofit in New York City called New Alternatives that um, helps and support um, LGBTQ youth experiencing homelessness. And we bring in teaching artists to come in and pair with the clients and to give them a container to share their story, to share whatever story they want to share, to perform in spoken word or song or poem or dance or scene lits or someone just wrote a like novel and then read part of it, you know, and like uh -huh. um, so, some of the consistent feedback that we get from the clients are like, I didn't know that anyone cared. I didn't mm -hmm. think anyone cared mm -hmm. about my story or wanted to hear it. And I was like, of course we care about your story. Of course we want to hear your story. You're like, you're, you're a human being, like you deserve yeah. to have your story held and celebrated. And um, it's just so spectacular that I, I really want to dig in with you, just how art, how the how yeah. art can be that container, can be that vessel for so many people in so many different ways. So how did you, um, so how do you use art as a way to yeah. um, bear witness and to hold mm -hmm. and to help folks move through? whatever they're feeling. Indeed, that's a wonderful question. And thank you so much for your, your testimony too, because it just, it, I, I feel such connection to your, your uh, life work, right? And, I feel it right and back. <laughs> I, yeah, and I, and I also just, you know, I, I think it's this thing of saying, mm, 
you know, because I also I'm I'm 51, so I grew up in the height of my teenage years were the height of the Reagan years, you know. So it was it was, it was yeah. a, a horror show for queer people, you know. For sure, it was horrible. Yeah. Um, and I think part of the thing, even back then, was knowing that there were other ways to be, knowing having had the experience of being in a loving community. And I, I want to name it very particularly to say that I don't paint any kind of utopic picture of any community, you know, and, and I'm not saying that there was not homophobia and I'm not saying that there was not classism and colorism and all those sorts of things. But I'm saying that the baseline was a certain investment in common humanity. Yeah. And so if I believe that is the world that is possible because I experienced it, mm-hmm. I had, I lived in it, you know, so I'm not making it up. It's not a fiction. Yeah. Then how do I create circumstances where people can experience it too? And I found that what I can do with my art is create a temporary house. That's why I call much of my work altars, right? Because, and I'm thinking about altars and kind of like, the diasporic tradition, not altar in a Catholic church, but the idea of an of an altar that you construct uh, out of materials specific to a, a, a religious practice or to a spiritual practice or to a contemplative practice uh, to focus your en- attention and energy on a particular thing or a question. So what I know is that I can, in an hour, in two hours of a performance, I can, because I'm inviting you in, I can make the house I invite you in Mm. too. I can make my invitation such that it honors your humanity. I can craft what I'm doing in such a way, hopefully that I'm engendering questions and feeding your curiosity rather than giving you statements or, or demanding that you hear only a particular point of view. I really think about my shows as congregational gatherings. And I think a lot about, you know, the great Toshi Regan talks about congregational sound, right? And the idea is in congregational sound, you're seeking to have everyone raise their voice together, but you're not seeking a single tone. You're, you want all those variations of, and differences so that somebody's a little bit sharp, somebody's a little bit flat, Somebody is a little behind the beat. Somebody's loud, somebody's soft. Everybody's themselves. But there's a beauty that comes from that sound that vibrates, it's so alive. And, it, and while there can be you know, beauty in that kind of like smooth edged, everybody's trying to blend and be the same thing. And that's part of making you know, any kind of art. I'm really interested in activating spaces, activating rooms so that people get to be who they are. And what I love about work, I've been working with my alter ego, my performance persona, Jamama, since 1995. And there's something about her that gets people to do stuff. Like they'll do things for Joe. I just performed the other day in Boston for the first time since the pandemic live. And, um, it been yeah. I was a little. I was like, you know, my rusty is she rusty? and she came right through, and she got everybody to do what she they want. You know, she wanted them to do, and I think there's a way because she kind of signals that era of of the diva who was very civic minded, who was generous, and who lifted you up, who kind of demanded through their own dignity that you sit up a little bit in yourself. Mm. So I'm thinking about the the Diana Ross, Dionne Warwick, D- Diane Carroll era of, of incredible performers. Um, I think people relax, some part of them relaxes around her so that she can say, I'm gonna ask you a thing and I want you to tell me a thing in this room full of however many hundred people. And I trust that I'm not gonna bait and switch you. Mm. Trust that I'm not gonna betray the confidence. And I think it's that sense that, that other people will hold your trust and will act honorably that has been so profoundly eroded 
especially through social media. And so the idea that, you know, so in a way, like, I don't trust that I'm not going to get attacked for telling my truth anymore. So what I want to do is create a space where, you know, even for that little bit of time, when you're with her, when you're with me, we've got you. So you can say the thing that might cause a wake in the room and we've got you. We're not leaving you. And we're not, I'm also not going to (laughs) demand you know, that you see it my way. If I can offer one quick story, I remember we were doing uh, our show Blacklight in Boston a few, couple of years ago. And, you know, it's, the, it's a show where the, the, the light never goes completely down on, on the audience because um, I want everybody to see one another, she wants to see them. And so there was a, there was a, a couple, an older uh, gay white male couple kind of plunk in the middle and sort of set up cabaret style with other, you know, so it's a big room. And one of one member of the couple was, you know, in the show kind of engaging the other looked like, you know, he was at the dentist. It was like, it was (laughs) painful, you know? And I knew because I've done this for so long that, that, that it was, it was hitting a lot of his buttons. Mm. It wasn't giving him a narrative structure that he wanted. It was, you know, it, it was associative rather than that kind of Aristotelian logic. Um, and it was, it's a whole bunch of different kinds of people and music. And it's like one moment it's about, the next moment it's disco, the next moment it's punk rock. Like it's a lot of things. And, and, uh, and I remember uh, there's that thing of like, well, you could just ignore that person, you know, and do the <laughs> show and focus on, but, but Joe Mama went right over to him and, and welcomed him to the show and welcomed his partner to the show and, and said, you know, um, said, you know, uh, basically inquired as to what was going on with, with this experience for them, not in a way to get you, you know, it wasn't that mm-hmm. at all. It was framed in a way. And basically they were like, I don't know what this thing is, right? And, and the room kind of got boom, you know, got a little bit still because that would then be the moment more often than not that we experience the conflict, right? right. I'm going to try to shame you or I'm going to try and tell you whatever. And Joe said, how wonderful. Isn't it extraordinary to be able to be in a place where you are outside of your comfort zone and you don't know what's going on? What an experience to have. And thank you for having that experience with us today. And, you know, and just that's it. And welcome. We are happy you're here. And went on. Did not do anything else other than that. And and the gentleman shifted. Now I don't think for a minute that he liked the show. Mm-hmm. But what I will say is it it the thing that made him feel so uptight, we acknowledged it. And I'm like, you know what? This is probably not your cup of tea. I'm not your cup of tea. Maybe, you know, like you, your idea of what a queer person is, is this box. And I don't go in that box. Mm-hmm. Your idea of what theater is, is this box. I don't go in that box. So we're clear. And the most important thing for me is to say, yeah, you're right. I don't match that thing. And I'm still alive and I exist and I'm here and I'm taking up my space. And maybe part of my upbringing has taught me if we can create the conditions where it's okay for us to actually not want to be like one another, not mm. want to like the same things without then trying to erase the other or, or police the other, maybe we can get somewhere. But we're, we're so far from that in this culture. We're so far from it. So that's, when you, that's my long old answer to your question <laughs> about like, how do I use art? Mm-hmm. But it's, I try to create... I almost like open a portal to another dimension for an hour and a half and say, what would it feel like if you weren't going to be shamed for being who you are? What would it feel like if you weren't going to, you know, it wasn't going to be asked of you that you have an experience that you're not having, just have an experience. Mm -hmm. I love that. Thank you for sharing and for giving that, that anecdote. And also that you, I love specifically the questions that you keep asking, like, what does it feel like? What does it feel like? In my trainings, I ask that question multiple times to the people in the room. Wonderful. Because 
I think when people come into these professional development trainings or like, this is going to be content heavy. First of all, I like to make (laughs) jokes and I want us to be in this together. And I create the container around, Uh this is a place where you can ask questions and same as what you're saying, I I got you. I'm going to take it with the best of intentions. I'm going to change language if it's hurtful. But mm-hmm. I'm good. Then it's going to be a learning experience. I'm not going to judge you. But most of all, I ask over and over, what does it feel like? What's it yeah. feel like when someone makes an assumption about you that isn't true? Mm-hmm. And how can we apply that feeling that that, you know, common thread of, oh, I don't like when people make this assumption about me to help create more equitable spaces. And so I love that that's also a common like thread for you of like, what's it feel like to be in a space where you didn't expect to be? And how can we just be here together? That's it. It's beautiful. That's it. Um, it. Thank you. Yeah. I really want to talk about Jamama Jones. And um, Uh well, so I have a million questions about her, but my first one is Uh um, something that struck me that you just said um, when she's in the room, she demands um, like dignity, like, Mm -hmm. like for everyone um, for that you sit up is what you said. Can you That's share right. a little bit? I guess let me let's back up because you and I know who Jamama Jones is. Um, uh-huh, uh-huh. You obviously know better. Can you tell us who Jamama <laughs> Jones is? Yes. And and then how you how how that how she demands dignity. How does that actually feel? Mm-hmm. Look, you know all that good stuff. Beautiful. So um, her origin story is very quick and 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 clear, which is in 1995. I was working on what would become my first full-length performance piece that I toured around the country. And I was doing a section in that piece on Soul Train because it was such a fixture of my upbringing. So when I was talking about watching the Rabbit Ear TV, that was one of the shows we watched. You know, mm-hmm. my friends and I would watch the show. And then in the warmer months, we would run outside together and do the dances of whoever, you know, like whatever was the new dance that week. Um, and I didn't want to imitate you know, do kind of like a drag impersonation of one of those divas that I mentioned. Um, I wanted to embody it somehow. And I sat down with a notebook that a friend had made for me and the, and I just started writing. And Jomama Jones came down on the paper and I was like, who is that, you know? And and within an afternoon, she she appeared fully formed to me. And my roommate at the time, I was living in Minneapolis, uh, we went right out and we went to the store um, they used to have those stores all over the place that were kind of like hybrid party stores, costume stores, crystal stores. It was like everything mm. was in there in the 80s and 90s, you know. Um, mm. And so I outfitted her and we went for a walk uh, in the street, Joe and my roommate. And and they and it was it was done. It was like she came into being and she was a little more arch, a little more a little more edgy uh, back then. And then I went through a long period where I didn't perform her. And when she kind of quote unquote returned to me, it's as though she had been on a big life journey and come back. And Mm. in that time, she had grown up into almost an elder figure. Um, And there was this deep sense that if I'm honest with you, Dubs, it's almost like, you know, and I, I ended up naming this. It's like she came from the future to come get me. That's mm. the feeling I overwhelmingly had. And so she would be crystal clear about, about something that would take me a while to catch up on. Or she would be, you know, reject. I would write monologues and songs and she'd be like, mm, no, we're not doing any of that. <laughs> and on, you know, we'd get into performance and she would just do what she was going to do. And, um, you know, it was, it was just a, it was a really powerful surrender on my part uh, of my desire to control an experience which is a kind of mystical experience in part. Um, so, you know, who, who she is, is that she is a, um, posited as an, uh, she was a, a hit R&B singer in the early 80s who ended up leaving the U.S. because of, of Reagan and her first Bush <laughs> and spending time away and then then she came back uh in in the right around the time of obama's election actually um and we embarked upon this kind of uh series of shows that uh uh kind of centered her come back and told her story and talked about history and talked about that era um 
you know, I think folk might, some folk may have seen the, the recent documentary, uh, Summer of Soul that Questlove uh, put out where, you know, they, they had made this documentary, the Harlem Arts uh, Fair so, in 1969. So yeah. amazing, right? Yeah. Yeah. But that vibe, that vibe mm. is the vibe out of which Joe comes, right? Like I it's, it. it's a cert, it's a particular civic minded sense of black identity which again is very different now that doesn't exist in the same way mm. um i was forged in that you know and and it was an unusual thing uh in the eyes of other people that you could have me who is like a quote-unquote biracial kid who grows up in a black context um who is suffused with the politics of the of the movement you know what i mean um, and so for me, part of it was like, I want to broadcast to the world what I remember. Mm. I want to broadcast to the world what I know is possible. Um, and it felt also because of my own gender queerness, you know, like my, my, my multiple self holding being um, that Joe was the vehicle. And it, so, and I want to be very clear that I didn't make her up in the way I've written many other characters where I, I build them intentionally she really was already there mm. and i tapped into her mm. um and it's been a very interesting ride because there are people who have relationship with her that is long i i just saw a we just did a performance in boston um and there was a an incredible person who came up to me and said that they'd seen joe mama for since 1996 They'd, they'd been, they had been in communion that long. And I was so moved to think that somebody has been following her that long. You yeah. Know? So, yeah. I love that. Um, I love that it's more of like you're tapping in versus creating. Um, mm -hmm. I'm curious, can I ask you just like maybe, I don't know if it's a technical question, but some sure, sure, uh, like sure. logistical, can you share? Cause I've, I've read some things that, that Joe Mama is not a drag persona. And I think for some of our listeners, it it might be confusing. Is there a way that you can right. maybe just like explain a little bit? Oh, no, abs absolutely. Between? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and and I always preface this by saying that I, I bow to and love drag performance. Like it's not, there's no in any way, shape or form, you know, dig or a sense that I don't want to be associated with drag. Um and, you know, at a base level, Jovama is drag in the sense that, you know, I am a cis male person who is putting on the vestment and the persona of, uh, of a cis woman. Like that is a, that's a longstanding tradition, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I also am always clear about being as specific as I can and as truthful as I can. And inside drag performance, in the vast majority that I'm aware of in history and contemporary, there is a nudge and a wink that the performer is present inside the work so that the audience knows that the performer is there performing this persona and that that there's a there's a kind of we're all in on the thing together and that perf the performer themselves is present even in the midst of their performance of their persona mm. and with me i am wholly giving over to embody this being that I think of as completely distinct from me. And I think of it more in line of some of the mass theater traditions um, that are ancient traditions where you are actually the vessel that is possessed by the spirit of that particular mask. It is spirit work for me because I am, I am giving my body over <laughs> to the presence of this, this being and I don't want you to be paying attention to Daniel at all. I like th that, that's irrelevant. And I'm also not camping. Like I'm not, I'm not, uh, what do you call it? Poking fun at. Mm -hmm. And certainly there is a long history, while it is certainly not uh, replete in contemporary drag performance, <clears throat> there was a long history of sexism in, in drag performance and a kind of arch, uh, relationship to these personae that people were taking on that was in many ways a lampooning. Um, and that's also not true. So I want to, I want to always say that what I, what I want you to do is I want you to come and be in the room with Joe Mama as though she actually were a flesh and blood human being. And, and the trick is she has to use my body to do it. 
that's that's what I mean. Got it. That's helpful. And I'm I'm wondering then also, um, art, all different kinds of art can speak to people in all different kinds of ways. And so I wonder if I'm I'm taking a leap and feel free to bring me Go back down if this please, isn't. No, please, please, this, please. Um, because like I'm still thinking about how Jomama demands dignity in folks and how they like for them to like be, you know, to sit up in their chair. I'm just I keep imagining that and I love that. Um, do you think it's, it's because this is such a leading question, the different, because it's not an, it's not a, I am Daniel in this persona, we're all in this together. And it's more of you are embracing this other being, this other part of your universe where, how do I say this? It does demand of you a certain amount of bravery, I would say, generally speaking, um, to embrace this other part of who you are. And so do you think through doing that in such an authentic way is kind of what drives people to, to show up in this way? Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, I do. I think you nailed it. Um, and, and that there's what I've found <laughs> so interesting, right? But what I've found is the overwhelming response that I get from people. And this is multiple generations of people because one thing I'm super proud of, and I think that this is also a lot of the collaboration that I did with Shanta Bick, who at the time was the person who ran Joe's Pub at the Public Theater mm. and now is uh, at Lincoln Center uh, running things over there. Um, and she and I would speak for hours about cultivating the audience and making sure that people could get access to this work. So I'm proud that my audiences tend to have like kids, 10, 11, 12 years old and 90 year olds. Like it has a full range. I'm proud that there's a, a real spectrum of class. And I'm also, of course, incredibly proud that there is cultural diversity always in, in my audiences. So the thing that's consistent is the people who do come up to speak to me or to Jomama or to members of our, our team, whether it be my bandmates or, or folk who've been working on the show in some way, is how almost relieved they are to feel that they've been asked to step into their humanity. Mm. That they're, they feel, and I've, so many times people have come and said, it gives me hope that there might be some way to do this, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and there's a like a kind of relief that it wasn't. And many people have said to me, I thought you were going to come up there and, and, you know, be in a persona that was going to be, you know, stereotypical or offensive or blah, blah, blah. You know, like there were all these things, expectations about what the show was going to be. Yeah. And then when they get there, there's this relief. And what it says to me is people are hungry <laughs> for that kind of connection. And, and maybe even, you know, hungry to, to, to be given an opportunity, you know, to get out of this, this, this binary, let's shoot each other down war that we seem to consistently land back into in this, in this, in larger popular discourse. Wow. People are hungry for that. I'm still always hungry for that. It's just life. Something you said earlier too, like, you know, life is hard and like walking yeah. through it with hurt. And mm -hmm. I would, I would say, you know, people who who live authentically and move into their truths and their truths happen to go against what is considered typical or normal or socially acceptable is there's so much hurt there and then i also think yeah. about the people who don't live authentically and move into their truths and i want to know why mm -hmm. i want to know why they're mm -hmm. not and why they're mm -hmm. scared or why they're too afraid i mean i i know why I mean, it doesn't always mm -hmm. have to be around LGBTQ identity, but whatever it is, it's because it's 
hard. It's hard most of the time, actually. And so then it's very hard. Yeah. I I love this idea that art can be a respite and like it can be a space where people can feed that hunger of human, like just deprived of humanity, deprived of connection. And I, I love that, that your performances give that to folks. And especially it's a sound, I don't know, astounding is maybe not the right word, but like that is like through, through the decades, through the, like, you know, of it's like, this is the same thing over and over. And it's really, that's been very intense for me, you know, with publishing this, this book of plays and performance pieces to say, you know, it's, an, it's, it's both, it's both an incredible sense of um, gratitude that a, I was, I was privileged to be able to keep going. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't, I don't say the, the I don't use that word lightly uh, because the privilege was the direct result of, of direct investment on the part of hundreds of people in my life, in my career, and in, in the work that I'm doing. So I, I am an individual who represents an entire constellation of people who made this work together with me and who believed in what I was doing. Um, and then there's also the, there is so much pain associated with it uh, because it, you know, 99% of what's in this book came out of my bones. Mm. And it was often made where, you know, the theater industry, um, you know, I w- if I can dare call it the LGBTQ plus industry, if you yeah, know what I'm talking right. about, I do. have said over and over again, not you, not you, not you. I've had to choose myself time and time again. I got no sanction. And, you know, it is, it's a powerful thing, even in terms of aesthetics, like the way that I make work is the way that young people are making work now. It's associative. It's, it's about collaging things together. It's interdisciplinary and multivalent. I was doing that 25 years ago and no one was having it. And it's painful to recognize that and at the same time, celebrate the emergence of ways of making where it's, it's like, I'm so grateful that we're free of these old models. And I'm so impressed by and moved by the, this next generation of artists who are just so boldly breaking down all the remaining boundaries and claiming their selfhood. But then there's a lot of pain of saying, you know, I put my whole life into it and I still have those industries saying to me, not you. So it's, a, it's an interesting balance there. Um, and, and yet you can look and, you know, if you look at, at my, my resume and my, like what I've, the, the awards I've gotten, the blah, blah, blah. I think of those as investments from people, because most of those things come from peer reviewed panels and stuff that people believe in, in what I'm doing. So it's, it's like that thing that we all as, as, as queer folk walk with. Right. And I think I also have always walked with it as a black person where you have to see yourself clearly. You have to name yourself and you have to believe in yourself first and foremost and direct connect to that community of people who are your mirrors so that you can do the work because the world will tell you no. So you cannot get knocked over. And that's the thing that I'm concerned about and one of the reasons I keep making the work, and I think why I'm so moved by what you are describing with your practice, with the various facets of what you do, and with this podcast, because it's so vital for that young person who has been knocked down when the world said no, to hear the stories of the people who said, all right, get back up, mm-hmm. brush that off, and not don't pretend that it hurt. It does. But we're yeah. actually saying, and I can tell from what you've shared with me, Yes, you can name that it hurt and you can keep moving. Yep. Those things can be happening together. Yeah, I love that. There's this um, quote that I'm thinking of and I can't remember who said it, but it's falling down is part of life, but getting back up is living. That's right. And I, <laughs> I love that so much because yeah, yeah. It, um, I can really feel what you're saying around 
um, you know, you putting in everything over the last 25 years and being told no and being told no and then seeing this gen this generation of people doing the same thing. Um, but I just want to say that they wouldn't be able to do what they're doing. We wouldn't be able to do what we're doing without you. So even though you're getting told no, um, you're also being, I, the way that I'm seeing it is also yes, because oh, yes. <laughs> it's, yes. uh, you know, oh, yes. and you're, yes you're paving the way. But it's the yes, it matters because it comes from the people that I am. I'm always hoping and praying that I can be in service to. So that's that's how I keep going. You know, it's funny. Yeah. I heard from my my beloved fourth grade teacher, Miss mm. Zeline Davis, who was my first black teacher because I I got bused to a predominantly white school and she was the only black teacher in that school mm. and I had her for fourth grade, and I still talk to my friend from that class. Like we that class is still so emblazoned on my consciousness because she was the waymaker, the permission giver. And um, I've been in touch with her uh, via social media. Mm. Uh, she now lives in the South. And um, and it's funny, I t- on National Coming Out Day, I told a version of the story that I shared with you online. And, and, you know, and she wrote, I always knew and I celebrate you, you know? And she's like, mm. and keep going, <laughs> you know? Like her thing still, you know, is what are you gonna do now? How are you gonna keep the ball moving? So. Where I am right now is very much that place. It's like what I'm, I'm dreaming into the next phase of things. And this feels like such a powerful and graceful. Again, I feel so profoundly grateful for this moment because who, very not very often do, do people during their lifetime get an opportunity to mark something so visibly as a, as a, as a point of transition to say, this is the work that I've done. And then with the Atem project, which is a digital music and, and video and podcast, this is where I'm heading. So it's like this beautiful bridge. And, you know, I just invite folks who are interested to partake of it. And, um, and also what I hope you'll do as you see this work, you're going to see dozens of names of other artists, dozens of other people to go find out about, you know, because I'm not, you are not, we are not alone. And we are part of a massive constellation of people mm-hmm. who are doing this incredible work. And it's, it's like, when you feel that everything feels good. I love that. And what a beautiful, beautiful note. I don't want to do this, but to end the interview part of the, the conversation yeah. um, and move us into our lightning round of questions, Awesome. Um, which are, all open-ended because for season one and two, they were all binary. And I got lovingly called in of maybe we shouldn't have okay. so many binary questions. <laughs> There's one binary question because I couldn't get rid of it. It's uh, all but... good. We can handle it. It won't <laughs> knock me off my chair. Okay, right. good. Um, so just for fun and whatever yeah. comes to mind. Um, so if you could name your own crayon, what would you name it? Perfection. Ooh. What's your favorite time of day? sunrise Mm. favorite current queer media representation there's so many oh that's a great question um i'm not gonna be lightning on this give me a second that's okay um god there's so many um i will i will have to give up uh, to right now to Lil Nas X and just say what an extraordinary thing to see. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, a song that makes your heart soar. <sighs> Baby, this love I have by Minnie Riperton. Mm. Favorite way to travel. Plane. Favorite quote. I'm just so sad about the lightning part. <laughs> I'm glad you'll edit. Um, okay. Tony Morrison, I don't look to criticism to tell me about my work, but rather to tell me how my work meets the world. Mm. I love that. I'm going to be noodling on that all day. <laughs> um, okay. 
bagels or donuts? Bagels. That is the correct answer, even though there are no. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Daniel, is thank that you. the binary question? That's the binary question. Yeah, I couldn't get rid of it. <laughs> but that's but that's all. There's only one answer. Otherwise, yeah. So come on. Exactly, right. <laughs> um, Daniel. This has been such a lovely conversation. Thank you so much for sharing. How can people find you? Find your work. Get involved. All that good stuff. Thank you so much, Dubs. This has been a true joy. And I'm so happy to meet a fellow journeyer in this way. Um, You can, uh, I would send people to the new uh, site, www.aten.life to dive into that project and, and it will lead you to everything else. And my website's associated there too, just danielalexanderjones.com and you can find all the other stuff there. Beautiful. Thank you, Daniel. Thank Thank you for coming out. Thank you for having me out. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for coming out. Hey, everyone. It's your host, Dubs Weinblatt. Thank you so much for listening with an open heart and an open mind. If you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, please do so so you don't miss an episode. And don't forget to rate and review us. It really helps. And we want to hear from you. We want to know your coming out story. Head on over to Thank You For Coming Out's Instagram page, at thank you for coming out and click the link in our bio. There's a form there where you can submit your coming out story either anonymously or with your name. And you can have the chance to hear your story read out on the thank you for coming out podcast. We're so happy that you're part of our community and we want you to know that your story matters. Thank you for coming out.